Hey, you're listening to Darcy Ungaro and the NZ Everyday Investor, but you're not listening to me on the normal day. So you're probably wondering, what the heck is going on? Have you changed the day on us? Our whole world is falling apart. No, this is in addition to the regular podcast. It's going to be a weekly series that we're going to be doing for a few weeks. Every Wednesday at 5.30, we're recording live on Clubhouse, a discussion between Rupert Carline and I, where we dissect, we discuss, and we deliberate on the latest in money news from around the world. Now, if you'd like to listen into these sessions live and ask questions live, make sure you follow the NZ Everyday Investor on Clubhouse and tune in every Wednesday at 5.30. So we're going to make a start now. This is the first one, but don't be surprised if you see it every Wednesday for a while. I'll be here on Monday for a regular show as well. Cool. Enjoy. All right. Rupert Carlion, thank you for joining me, sir. Thank you for having me, Darcy. Cool. So today we're going to, we're going to kick off our inaugural weekly money uh, news of the money world. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Bill Wang and how he lost $416 million dollars per hour over a 48-hour period, uh, $20 billion. I think this is fascinating. So do you want to maybe start, Rupert, with telling us what the story was? Yeah, it's a great stat, $418. Uh, was, was that an hour or a minute? Sorry. That's an hour. So $416 million per hour. Like that's an that's an expensive you know wage bill, right? That is that. A, that is that is an expensive gambling habit right there. So yeah. Bill Wang, um, who was he? So Bill Wang is of Korean descent. He grew up in hedge funds, um, initially working for Julian Robertson um, and Tiger Asset Management. So Julian Robertson and Tiger, they were some of the original hedge funds out there. New Zealanders will know them better because of his philanthropy and his work in New Zealand building golf courses and donations to the Auckland Art Gallery. When Tiger broke up in 2000 and stopped uh, accepting outside money, Julian Robertson set up a whole lot of uh, Tiger Cub funds. So about 30 different funds were set up around the world with all of his people. And Bill Wang went and up Tiger Asia. Um, and that was a semi-successful hedge fund that he ran for a number of years in the 2000s. He ended up leaving. Um, so, sorry, the hedge fund closed in 2012 as a result of poor returns. Um, as investors became a little bit annoyed when they found out that he was taking large bets on US listed companies, which was a no-go for an Asian hedge fund. Um, and then the other big issue he had was he had an insider trading case. Um, and so he was charged with insider trading um, for trading uh, with some, in some of the Chinese banks. But what's really interesting is he managed to come back from that. And so his settlement with the SEC meant that he paid a $60 million fine. And after that, he was able to run his own family office. So he had made $200 million through his hedge fund. And he, in 2012, he set up Akepigo, which was his own family office to do that. And that kind of sets us up for where we were two or three weeks ago, where Archipelago where it turned itself into one of the largest family offices in the world. Um, earlier in the year, it had a total of $30 billion worth of assets, all 100% invested and probably one of the most liquid um, set of investments in the world. Um, no one that we can find has got a single set of investments that is listed under a single person like that as well. And he was pretty quiet about it, right? Like he wasn't a um, typical, typical sort of guy. He was driving around in his Hyundai nah. or his Kia, just li living in the burbs. He wasn't kind of 
acting real showy no. and stuff like that. He was just a regular sort of guy, but he had this other side of him, didn't he? Oh, completely, right? He was clearly addicted to risk, addicted to taking big bets. He 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 lived for family and for church. Um, he was heavily involved in his local church. He uh, lived over in New Jersey, drove into his Central Park offices every day. But he was the hedge fund manager that, that no one had ever seen. He didn't live in the New York social society. The only people that knew of him were the hedge fund sales desks and the compliance officers of all of the banks um, who were debating whether it was someone they wanted to deal with or not. And like the first thing that came up, came up when, I, when I started looking into this is how could someone like that with a background like that where the SEC kind of sued him for you know millions of dollars, he then bounces back and he's able to access a whole bunch of credit from these these big banks how how can that actually happen? It's amazing, right? It's um, unfortunately banks are very very good at following the money, and so a really eight years saying we don't want to deal with them, we don't want to deal with them, and finally the hedge fund sales guys took the view last year that they wanted to be a part of this party, and so they opened up. Um, unfortunately, like all of the banks, they just followed the fees. So hedge funds are one of the biggest fee generators for funds, um, sorry, for the investment banks. And so therefore, you've got to be a very, very badly behaved person for them not to want to deal with you. But I think we bring it back to the bill, $30 billion, he was worth $30 billion at the start of the year. And then in late March, he was still worth a, a $20 billion. But unfortunately for him, he had his holdings all tied up in about 10, his $20 billion was tied up in about 10 to 15 different stocks. He took big bets on some Chinese tech companies and also some American media companies. And when we take, say, big bets, he had all of his money tied up. But he was also highly leveraged. So hmm. he had, at one point, he was operating a leverage ratio of about five to six, um, five or six to one. So he might have had, he had $20 billion invested at the end, but that meant that he owned $100 billion worth of stocks. And that, that's probably, um, and th- these, are, these are big numbers, right? So like one billion is, what is that? That's a thousand millions. Oh, massive. Put that in context. Yeah. Last year, the New Zealand government for their whole COVID relief package was going to be $40 billion. So this guy owned two and a half times that in stocks. Concentrated and leveraged. Uh, it's about as, it's the biggest recipe for disaster you can ever have. I mean, that to be fair, Darcy, that is how you turn a $200 million fortune in 2012 into a $20 billion fortune in 2021 but um yeah it's it's an amazing amount of risk right and oh yeah what what's fascinating about it is afterwards julian robertson was interviewed and he said oh well the one thing that we really tried to teach into everyone is you get out of a position if you don't like it when things start to go sour you sell down you sell really quickly um and unfortunately that's what the banks apparently were trying to do to bill huang here but they, um, he just refused, and he had a firm belief that these companies would come back, hmm. um, and he refused to trade, and therefore the bank sold everything out from underneath him. Exactly yeah. the same as what happens uh, with your house. If you can't meet the mortgage payments or all of a sudden there's not enough equity left in the house, the banks will just sell everything as quick as they can underneath them. And this is what I find fa- fascinating about this story is because the numbers are obscene. We, we probably don't, we'll never really appreciate just what that really means to play with that amount of money. But the, or the, the addiction that's going on here, the addiction to risk is something yeah. that 
we can all succumb to at varying different levels, whether it's playing lotto or whether it's just driving too fast or smoking crack cocaine. I don't know. It's there, there is that element of risk that we all potentially have except for the cocaine, but the, like a lot of people, like you, you ask a lot of people who have built a lot of wealth in New Zealand and they've done it through leverage. They've done it through leverage and property. And just in the last, you know, 12 months, people have made crazy gains if they were levered up and they hung on for dear life during the last 12 months. And so you can kind of see how the same sort of concept works. You, you go in there with $1, the bank gives you five, you get all the gains, all you've got at risk is your one. So it's the same sort of concept, except these banks, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs, I think it was one of them. Um, Credit Suisse, Nomura, Deutsche Bank. Oh, that, that were all, everyone was there. Yeah. All of the investors. And they didn't really know, they didn't really necessarily know that this was going on with other banks as well, because he wasn't owning these shares directly. So it wouldn't appear on those filings that you have to make. I think it's the 13F filings, right? right? So yeah. he, he was effectively holding, that was held on his behalf by these banks. So of course, it was unclear as to what his position actually was at any given time, right? Oh, completely. And I think that was what really spooked people in March. It was when it started to appear and people recognized just how much um, leverage he had and how wide how widely spread his holdings. Yeah. I think on, on the risk point, back to your, what you were saying before, there, a lot of people have made themselves very wealthy using leverage and taking high risks. The, the big difference here is a lot of people will, will take a huge amount of risks for the first one, maybe even for the second time they kind of have the second big set of deals, but then they put a whole lot of money aside. So one of the big pieces the, on the risk piece, typically there's a lot of people that have used leverage and taking massive bets at some point in time um, to make themselves well. But generally what, but more often than not, what people will do is they'll go very, very leveraged, very deep on the first deal, maybe on the second deal, take a huge amount of risk. But then after that, what they do is they kind of unwind the risk by what they'll kind of have, they'll have a core piece of money set aside and go, hey, I'm happy here and I'm happy kind of, this is the amount of money that I, I want and to have my legacy. And then, then they're gonna have another piece of money sitting over on the other side, which is where they say, okay, this is my gambling money. This is the stuff where I'm gonna be really exciting. Um, and I'm happy to lose all of that. Hmm. Um, so if I was worth a billion dollars, I might sit there and go, well, okay, $400 million is it's a huge amount of money, um, and I can never spend that in my lifetime. My children and my grandchildren can never spend that in their lifetime. Um, so I'm just going to kind of spend my last five or $600 million, and I can keep on taking risks and um, almost keep on gambling with that money. In this case, it appears that um, he didn't do that. All of that money was stayed invested and it's gone from, um, that's why he's gone from 20 billion to zero in such a short space of time. So there were, mm. there were none of the normal risk management rules that mm. um, investors typically have around them. That's a signal effectively that he wasn't necessarily behaving as an investor really. He was effectively gambling in the arena of the financial markets because you know, he, he wasn't exercising risk management because he actually wanted the risk. He didn't want to, yeah. to get rid of it. He wanted to hold the risk because he was obviously getting jacked up in some way. Uh, yeah, exactly. But what's even stranger about this case is normally 
you hear about these people, right? So the, the guys that are obsessed with risks, they're often doing it for status. For um, They're the people in New York that are putting huge donations into all of the, the big society things. Um, this is what was so much more interesting about Bill Huang. It was all in his own head. He didn't want anyone to know about what he was doing. He didn't want anyone to know about how much money he had, how much money he was making. It was clearly just his own internal addiction. And so when when you see something like this unfold, you naturally look at, well, who is to blame? Obviously, he, he clearly has an addiction to risk. That would be my assessment of it. And But it's not just him. It would be these massive banks that are enabling him to do something which they possibly should have picked up on when they were doing the whole know your customer, know your client type check, which makes me wonder, you know, is, is the KYC aspect of this sometimes often forgotten w- when it comes to the right people with these big banks? And, and is it just for the regular everyday person that needs to fulfill all these rules? But for those with enough money, are they allowed to sail through that? Uh, for someone that's worked in one of those big banks for a very long time, I think most definitely yes. There are a very different set of rules for people like you and I, Darcy, versus um, the Bill Huangs of this world. But in saying that, Bill Huang was, was paying out many hundreds of millions of dollars in fees every single year. Yeah. Um, and so that's why people were, were going to do that. The one thing I'd challenge you on, is there a big issue here for the broader system? Um, and is this something that should be stopped? If Archipelago and Bill Huang wants to go and bet $20 billion and potentially blow his fortune, is that an issue? That's what I don't know the answer to. Is there a big problem here? That's a good question because I think in any capitalist framework, you need to allow those with a lot of money to be able to lose it. And if you if you don't allow big players to lose money, then you know, it's not really an all-encompassing system, right? So there's probably an element uh, exactly. of let it, letting some people fail, right? We have to let some people fail. It feels like we, we, we're almost constrained, though. At, at the retail level, the everyday level, we're almost constrained by all these rules and then when you get high enough, you're not. You're let. You're let loose. And t- to me, I just, Clearly. I just can't see the logic of, of constraining those in the bottom and releasing those at the very top to to create destruction. Because you know, global financial crisis comes into mind, and it it reeks of that oh, that same pattern, doesn't it? Completely. It's yeah. I, one of the big issues. So in New Zealand, we have this this definitional difference between a wholesale investor and a retail investor, and effectively a wholesale investor is someone that's got lots of money. Um, and supposedly they're, they're a whole lot more knowledgeable. And it's, a, it's another small-scale example of exactly that. The moment that you can classify yourself as a wholesale investor because you've got lots of money to invest, mm. all of a sudden the products you have access to, the amount of risk you can take, it, everything just completely changes. Mm. So no, I, I kind of agree. And it's these, I guess, kind of never thought about it like this, but it's these stories and this kind of behavior and this double standards and the rules that get everyone so fired up and worked up about Wall Street. Yeah, and it kind of feeds into that narrative of the haves and the have-nots and, and this whole kind of you know Occupy Wall Street 2.0 or 3.0 yeah. now where there's this, this growing sense that the everyday person is, is not happy with how the bigger players at the bigger end of town are playing the game. You know, on the flip side, though, 
and, and I don't know if, if you've ever had experience of this. I've, I've kind of done this as a bit of an exercise in expressing my risk taking it, but just using, you know, online trading platforms. And I'm not talking about like hatch and shares and stuff like that, but actual platforms where you can use leverage. So there are platforms out there where you can do that and you can actually use fake money or just, you know, virtual currency to play around with and use leverage to actually get a feel for it. And you realize actually pretty quickly, you might win one time, you might win two times, but you're probably not going to win a third time or a fourth time. So, you know, I, th I think there is, there is ability for those people at the retail level to actually experience what it's like, but it's, it's still quite perverse. It's quite upside down in this space, isn't it? Oh, massively. And that's what's really scary, right? That's where people get access to this because there are actually some, some amazing lessons in all of this for the everyday retail investor, right? First and foremost is leverage is amazing when things go well, but holy shit, it's scary when things go badly. And that's kind of it. You kind of, this guy, you think about um, Archipelago, for example, $20 billion of equity, $100 billion worth of notionals. Um, all it took was a 15 to 20% decline in his overall portfolio to him, for him to be completely wiped out. And that is the power of leverage, right? And that's something that um, all investors need to be really, really scared of. And so that's kind of, but it's, that's a little bit of the scary thing about house prices. If you kind of think that one through, most people, a lot of people sitting there with 80% leverage on their house prices. If house prices come back, which one day they will, then what does that mean for all of these people that are highly levered? Um, or the people that are using CMC markets and some of those other products that are out there to kind of allow people to take big leverage on the stock market. The, the second big lesson, I reckon, which is actually really interesting as well, is uh, number one rule in finance. Past performance does not equal future performance. <laughs> if you'd kind of been sitting there saying this guy turned $200 million in 2012 to $20 billion by 2021, every single person... Uh, this uh, kind of most people would sit there and go, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that. But again, without understanding the risk that he was taking, without understanding that piece, it's just a really good example of why choosing funds or investing your money based on past performance is actually a recipe for disaster. Mm. Because if someone is delivering $200 billion, million into $20 billion, that means they've taken an amazing amount of risk which can very, very easily unwind. And that's the problem with hedge funds. Yeah. They can have years where they're up 200% and then they can have the next year where they're down 60, 70, 80%. Yeah. And I think, you know, even just with, with house prices, often people look, look to markets where they've exploded recently in price and they, they want to get on the action, assuming it's going to persist. Same thing with KiwiSaver providers. Sometimes you'll, you'll chase you'll chase what you've heard as a good return. Sometimes the provider themselves might be, you know, trumpeting an amazing return, which is, you know, that's an interesting one. But again, yeah, past performance is not an indicator of future performance. In fact, sometimes it's maybe even an indicator that things could normalize shortly after you've seen that headline rate, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we sit, uh, it's kind of interesting. We sit often with the investment meetings with um, Hobson Wealth, um, who are kind of a partner of Cotter Wealth. And it's interesting that when they're talking about individual funds, when they see a fund that's absolutely smashed the lights out and had an amazing 12-month performance, mm. more often than not, their advice to the clients will be, okay, now it's time to get out. 
they've had their run. They've done really well. We've got lucky. They've taken the risk. Um, it's paid off. But let's get out before it turns because nine times out of ten it does. That's, a, that's probably a really good place to finish on, actually, Rupert. We, we want to keep on doing this every week, every Wednesday at 5.30. Chime in. Um, you know, we've got Slido running in the background. I forgot to mention that at the start, I think. But next week, uh, we'll be running Slido. So if anyone wants to uh, check out that, uh, you go to slide.do. You put in the reference number, and then you can ask questions. And we'll remind you next week what that reference number is. So don't know what we're going to be talking about next week. But it'll be something topical, something interesting. And we'll just uh, keep on doing it until we get absolutely bored stiff of it. How's that sound, Rupert? Well, my problem is, Darcy, I love these conversations because <laughs> this is my this, this is my world. I've got 16 topics to line up that we could talk about next week. It's probably you that's going to get bored of me. I doubt it, man. I doubt it. I've been, yeah, no, that's, that's good. So what what we'll do is we'll we'll finish up now. Thanks for uh, thanks for chiming in tonight, Rupert, and we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you, and we'll speak next week. Cool, good one. Cheers, guys. See ya.